Good evening and welcome to the Independent News Hour. I'm your host, John Tarleton, Editor-in-Chief of the Independent, New York City's lefty newspaper and website, online at independent.org, I-N-D-Y-P-E-N-D-E-N-T dot O-R-G. I'm joined by my co-host, Amma Gagarian, recently returned from Cuba. Hi, John. It's great to be back and welcome to all of our listeners on 99.5 FM and streaming on WBAI.org. Well, Amba, we look forward to hearing more about your trip to Cuba and what you saw and learned in the second half of the show. In the first half of our show, we're going to be talking about the struggle for abortion rights. On Saturday, rallies for abortion rights uh, were held in scores of cities and towns across the country that drew a total of hundreds of thousands of participants. Here in New York, there were major rallies at both Union Square and Brooklyn's Cadman Plaza. We have uh, two fascinating guests who will join us in a few moments. But first, Amba, you have some sound to share from Saturday's rally at Cadman Plaza. That's right. I do. There were tens of thousands of people there on hand. And uh, the people I spoke with had some strong opinions about this this looming demise of uh, rights to abortion, looming demise of Roe v. Wade. So let's go to that clip here. Voices from the protest. In the time that I grew up, just before Roe versus Wade became a uh, 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 law of the land, uh, a number of women, and all these women that I know were uh, black women, they um, they resorted to different things to get to have an abortion. Uh, one person died because she tried to abort within the eighth month. I knew of people who would wear girdles to try to hide being pregnant and ended up uh, creating problems for their the child when it was born. They didn't want to have it and when they went into labor they were by themselves because they didn't want anyone to know they were pregnant so uh, the child ended up dying. The unfortunate thing is those things happened and they didn't have to even then because there were procedures that could have helped them but they just were not legal. So keeping Roe versus Wade legal makes it a lot easier for women to make um, conscious decisions about what they want to do, knowing they have choices. We shouldn't be having this conversation 50 years later. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Uh, it was settled. People were fine with it, and we cannot allow a minority to speak for the majority. I think the reason why I decided to bring it back today, even though I know nonviolent resistance is more effective, is that I wanted to express how angry I am. I wanted to have a visual representation of how absolutely incensed I feel, because I feel like I really want to fight and I want people to know that women are going to fight physically we're pissed so you know they called down the thunder well now they got it I've had two it was legal and it saved my life I would have ended up a very different person with much less safe options so all for here today at this rally for abortion rights. Um, my son and I made this sign that says mamas are always right, which is something I teach him at home. Um, the way I explained it to him today was that um, 
I said to him, well, what's the most important job in the world? And he said, being a mama. And I said, well, some bad men want to make it so that mamas can't choose when to be mamas. And that's not right. And he understood that. And so that's why I brought him here today. I mean, you know, I was pro-choice before I got pregnant, and I'm even more pro-choice now. This is the hardest job in the world, and the idea of having to do it against your will is it's unconscionable. Those were voices from Saturday's abortion rights protest at Cadman Plaza. Tens of thousands of people uh, joined that in in. in later marched over the Brooklyn Bridge to Foley Square. Uh, Amba, any more thoughts on your part about Saturday's rally and, and what you saw and, and, and thought while you were there? Oh, well, there's a lot of thoughts, but I'll try and be concise. Um, I think from my own perspective, being a, a fertile, uh, I don't know, I was, I mean, I'm of a, reproductive <laughs> age. <laughs> I don't, Luckily, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah, like for myself, you know, I'm like, why the hell am I out here? I only have so much time outside of my work and my life to go to protest and to hit the streets. And honestly, frankly, I want to be in the streets for something more radical than abortion. You know, it's really it's really annoying that I have to be out there, you know, um, fighting for something that is really basic. So that's one thing. And I think a lot of people feel the same way. Uh, you know, younger women, younger people uh, of reproductive age, and then also older people who were went through the first fight, you know, and uh, that wasn't the only older woman who lived through pre Roe versus Wade, who I spoke with, who was just incensed. And, and I think the other thing is just, you know, it's not just about our right to our bodies. And why is this happening? This is happening because the Supreme Court is an extreme undemocratic, unrepresentative structure that has a lot of sway in American politics. And maybe for a while there was relative unbiased, but now with the um, extreme polarization, I, I, I hate to say polarization because really it feels like everyone's, you know, somewhat of a, a centrist. Um, but, but with the extreme Democrat versus Republican nature of the current, uh, you know, national politics, it's 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 um, it's made the Supreme Court even less democratic and even less representative than it ever was. And it's we should be really, really mad that the Supreme Court can decide anything for us. Um, yeah. OK, so. uh, well, I, I mean, I won't say much more than just that uh, <laughs> men should be 100 uh, percent unconditionally supporting all women and all the choices they make. And I can't believe that anybody would especially any man would see it differently. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think with that, um, you know, I'll leave the rest of the talking to our guests. So here to introduce them, we're going to have two amazing guests um, that will help us better understand the struggle that we're in right now for a, a, a childbearing person's right to control their body, a woman's right to control her body. And um, we are going to be joined by Melanie McLennan, who currently works as an addiction doctor here for the New York City Health System. But until around 2008, she was an abortion doctor and she performed abortions in North Carolina. South Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas, you know, uh, other than North Carolina, all states that are going to lose abortion when, when Alito's decision becomes official. And she was just 18 years old when Roe was decided and, and is furious about what's happening now. We will also be joined by journalist and documentary filmmaker Aaron Sheridan. And Aaron has been a contributing writer for the Indy since 2018. 
She covered abortion defense activism when she was based here in New York City, but she is currently based in Boise, Idaho, where abortion rights are definitely in dire threat. So welcome both of you to WBAI. Hi, Amba. And Aaron, we'll get to you shortly, but first we're going to start with Melanie. So Melanie, veteran abortion doctor, uh, what is just your reaction to, to the decision or the leaked, the leaked decision and, and Saturday's protest? Regarding the decision, I'm not surprised, but I was trying to be hopeful. Um, you know, it's fundamentalism is the direction the country's going in. It's very useful for controlling people. It's very useful for getting people to um, support things against their own interests, especially in times of economic hardship. It's not historically unusual, but um, I think it's uh, going to put such a pressure, especially, of course, on poor people and women of color that um, we're going to have ERs full again of people in sepsis and dying. Regarding Saturday's um, protest, I went to Union Square, which was really nice for the historical part of it. Union Square has always been the radical place for protests, and that felt really good. It wasn't as big as the one you went to, but it was really diverse, like every age, every color. It was. I really um, noticed that and loved it. The one thing I didn't love about it, although there were some really good speakers, especially um, a Dominican woman who's a reproductive health justice activist, was that people kept on mentioning um, white men and sort of vilifying them. And I think that that's now a stand in. You know, um, it certainly was always white men. But, you know, we shouldn't forget Clarence Thomas and <laughs> Margaret Thatcher and, you know, um, these sorts of uh Beliefs are not just restricted to white men. Otherwise, you know, we could just have women running everything and it'd be fine. So that was a little bit upsetting. And there were a lot of white men in, in the, um, in the protest and I actually felt for them. <laughs> so that was interesting. Little different from the way I felt, uh, a while ago. Right. And, and speaking of a while ago, can you tell us more about your experiences as work, working as an abortion doctor in the South? So by the time I was working, it wasn't so bad. But the person, the doctor who taught me, who's right now in Jackson, Mississippi, at the abortion clinic there for what he is afraid may be the last time, um, he was on. He he taught me how to do abortions. I'm a family practice doctor by specialty. I um, there is no specialty in abortion, and so he trained me. And he was, he was really vilified. His, his family home in Tennessee was protested really rapidly. Um, before I came along, he was also on the list that the husband of the OB doc who used to do abortions and then recanted the website that that guy put up that had blood, you know, uh, the people's names and addresses, doctors' names and addresses listed with blood dripping down over their names or X'd out if they'd been killed. So he had a hard time. I did not have as hard a time at all. I, um, but you still had to f- talk about walking into work, having people protesting every day. Like maybe you're numb to that, but talk about that and talk about some of the more surprising people who you or others gave abortions to. I'll do that. So um, I worked mostly in Charlotte, North Carolina, 
And every day driving into the parking lot there, there was a tall blonde woman who looked a little like me, who in a white coat, who very was smiling with a pen in her pocket and was stopping people, which would have meant that their cars were in the road. So that happened. They photographed my license plate. They got they had somebody in the anti-abortion movement there who worked for General Motors and they could get um, personal information by having a car license plate numbers. So um, let's see. So at a later time, um, they came to protest at. Let's see how to do this best. They came to my house went into my house and left a note for me there, come to God. And um, I had to call a cop who was more scared than I was and said, listen, you know, you're going to have to do a little search of this house. It was a big old house because, you know, these people have been in my house. So this guy was so bloody scared, a big, huge guy. It was a shame. I felt badly for him. You know, and we're poking around. We go through the first two floors. It's okay. But the basement's a hell of a mess. And he's poking around looking for packages. Which is years before that, when I had roommates, when I first started doing abortions, I had to tell my roommate that they or anybody staying at my house that they were not to touch a package if they came, if one came to my door by any means at all, because they had put that package with all those nails outside the abortion clinic in, um, I think it was Mississippi, and that the off-duty cop and the nurse who came to open the clinic, he poked it, and she had 19 surgeries and still doesn't walk properly or see well. So that was a kind of odd thing. And my response to it really in the end was, I mean, I was doing family practice a couple of days a week and abortions a couple of days a week. And my response was just, I'd introduce myself. I'd say, hi, I'm an abortion doctor. I'm sorry if you don't like it. The stigma really, even with legal abortion, was so apparent for so many of the women you know, we did not, we used, we did not, in New York, they put people to sleep. We were not putting people to sleep. And so they got a lot of counseling and that was excellent, but they would often be very scared. I had one woman when I first started out who was, um, had been a protester at this clinic and she was eight weeks pregnant and she said that she had thrown herself down the stairs already and walked into a frozen pond and that she had a one-year-old and didn't want to be pregnant. And it was a very, very, very unusual thing doing an abortion on this person. Um, it was it was difficult. And all the owners of all the abortion clinics that I knew that were part of the National Coalition of Abortion Providers, they every single one of them said to me that they had done abortions for the wives or daughters or actual protesters that were outside their clinics. Um, what else happened that wasn't so good? I worked at Little Rock in Arkansas, and there was a bomb threat. And everybody had to go out of the building, which means that people were in hospital gowns, you know, coming out of the building and having to wait in the parking lot, which was an open parking lot. I believe I felt more vulnerable for the patients and for myself then than I kind of ever had. Um, and, you know, it, it was not exactly a good experience for the patients. And it was very scary for the staff. It was just not a very good thing. And right. here's the other thing that used to happen. I've just remembered this is, I don't know whether you remember the anthrax scare, mm -hmm. but they were sending around envelopes to the anti-abortion people were sending around envelopes to abortion clinics and you'd open them and they'd have white powder in them. So abort, many abortion clinics treat for chlamydia 
um, afterwards with Cipro, which is the medicine for anthrax. So as I'm working one day, they said, Doc, listen, we just opened an envelope and it had white powder in it. I said, go in the back to the nurse. Let's get some Cipro. And as long as you didn't snort the damn stuff, close it up and you'll be fine. And what they were doing in other clinics who reported this was they were making everybody come out into the parking lot. They were practicing by setting up their decontamination tents, making the CEO, you know, the head, the the women who owned the clinics get naked and get sprayed. This was practice completely different from what they did when the Congress got answers, by the way. Right. And just so those were some of the more salient, crazy things that happened. Right. And just for our listeners who may not remember, the anthrax scare was in the fall of 2001, shortly after 9-11. And uh, so these uh, anti-abortion groups were taking advantage of the public uh, fear and apprehension around anthrax to uh, also harass and terrorize abortion providers. Uh, um, Melanie, uh, can you tell us a little, you you were a young woman when Roe versus Wade was decided. Uh, Can you tell us uh, what you re- remember about the pre-row days and, and also uh, what was the impact, uh, I guess, in your mind and your perception of of being a, a woman in American society when Roe was decided in favor of the right to choose? I'm only going to be able to answer part of that well. I, all my friends in high, when I was in high school, all my friends were two and three years older than me. And at that time, we had moved to a farm in South Jersey in the middle of nowhere, pretty much, from Brooklyn. So someone had found out about a doctor in Philadelphia, which was about an hour away, who provided birth control pills. And seven of us went to Philadelphia and got birth control pills from this remarkable little, um, tiny little woman, Austrian Jewish woman whose husband saw um, psychology patients in the other side of their their little house in, in Philadelphia. She did what progressive family practice and OBGYNs are just starting to do, which is providing birth control pills to women without vaginal exams beforehand. All seven of us were in the room. I was sitting on the floor. She patted me on the head. And so I had birth control pills before I needed them. And I kept them in my top drawer and I knew how to use them. And pretty much we made sure that everybody could get birth control pills. A friend of mine in Alabama, they kind of had done the same thing because thank God birth control pills were available and were legal. And this, mind you, is, you know, um, the time of free love as a result of the birth control pills. There was one young woman who was a friend of my younger brothers who at about the age of 15 had gotten pregnant, having gone out with one of the uh, more popular older guys in high school and gotten pregnant. And I have this memory of her walking down this street towards this small lake that was there. And she must have been about four or five months pregnant. And her parents had thrown her out as a 15-year-old, you know, just thrown her out. So as far as I was concerned, Roe v. Wade was normal and supposed to happen. And it went along with birth control pills. And this is what we were, you know, this is what we were going to do. And this should be possible. And Mel, if, Melanie, if you if you don't mind, uh, you know you've you've had a couple abortions. Just talk about that and what it meant to have the choice. So my first abortion, I was a third year medical student, and um, I called up a friend of mine who had gotten pregnant regardless of 
any birth control she'd ever used, even double. She'd have an IUD. She'd have the pill depot. It didn't matter. She got pregnant. So I called her up and she put me in touch with a group of women who were doing something called menstrual extraction, which was happening around the country. And what they did was practice with, you can use a soft tube to enter the cervix and a, and a kind of large syringe. And they basically extracted menses monthly practicing on each other very carefully and with a lot of studying of what the cervix looked like at what time in the cycle, et cetera, et cetera. So I had my first abortion done at home. Unfortunately, it was a little bit past seven weeks, so there was a little bit left over. So I proceeded to have like kind of every experience you could have for the first abortion. And about three days later, I was still, of course, going to medical school and in the psych rotation, and I had 104 fever, and they wanted to take me to the operating room. However, I'd done some studies and, and, you know, I knew for a fact that in the early days when they, when OBGYNs were using sharp curatage to do abortions, which they were used to doing for much further along pregnancies and full term deliveries that where something remained, some product of conception remained, there was a lot more blood loss and it was a lot more difficult. So I went home, stopped taking Advil and promptly passed a little teeny weeny piece of something or another and was fine with antibiotics. The second time I was an intern and I can remember standing up and falling asleep talking to my attendings. I thought that I was probably going to be thrown out of that program. That day, luckily, um, in the emergency room, a woman came in who'd had an abortion a couple of weeks prior and I asked her where she went. And I happened to be in eastern North Carolina at that time and the clinic was about three and a half hours away. So one Saturday morning, I went there, got an abortion, came back and um, kept working in the ER that night. So those were my two abortions. Right. And uh, thank you for, for sharing this. And I, I want to also bring in our other uh, our other guest, uh, Aaron Sheridan in Boise, Idaho. Uh, Aaron, are, are you there? I'm here. Great to have you with us. So I understand... Uh, Boise had one of its largest protests in uh, recent memory uh, on Sunday uh, about uh, Roe versus Wade. Uh, can you describe a little bit what that was like? Yeah, so I, you know, live about five minutes from uh, the state capitol in downtown Boise. And it was, I believe, Saturday morning. The rally was held. It was called Bands Off Our Bodies. And it was held by... Planned Parenthood, the ACLU of Idaho, add the words Idaho and some other groups in solidarity with other rallies that took place across the United States. I have been in Idaho since February of 2021, and there have been a number of protests that I covered as a reporter when I was at the Idaho Press. And the most people that I ever saw at a demonstration was probably no more than 200. And I showed up expecting to see maybe 100 to 200 people. And to my surprise, there were um, thousands. I mean, it was a sea of people in downtown. I have never seen so many people in one place in Idaho. This is a state that does not have a very large population. It's a state where um, it is challenging and potentially even discouraged to speak out against injustice. Um, it, it, and the, the, I think Planned Parenthood estimated 5,000 people um, and it was people of all ages. It was people of all backgrounds. It was people of a variety of demographics, a lot more older women than I'm used to seeing at protests. Um, I saw people in wheelchairs. I saw people of different skin colors. I saw people 
who were um, of different gender identities. It, it, um, it was a very diverse um, expression of, you know, we're not going to let you do this. And Erin, um, you know, talk a little bit about what kind of anti-choice laws are being prepared right now in Idaho. You know, that yes. So well. let me give you a quick history of abortion in Idaho because it is um, bleak, <laughs> for lack of better words. Um, right now, you can still get abortions in Idaho, both the pill and the procedure, um, but at limited locations, there are. Three Planned Parenthoods in the state, two are in the Boise area. One is in uh, Twin Falls, which is in southern Idaho, Um, meaning that actually in all of north Idaho, there is not a single Planned Parenthood where you can go to get an abortion. In the Boise area, there are there's the two Planned Parenthoods and then there's one, I believe, private clinic where you can go and get um, the pill and the procedure. And I think that the longest... Uh, you can be pregnant is up to 15 weeks at all of those three clinics. Um, some of them will only give you the pill up to 10 weeks or um, we'll do the procedure up to 13 weeks. It really depends. Um, so in Idaho in the 2000s, they passed a law that banned abortion after 22 weeks because the legislators felt that uh, fetuses can feel pain. Um, obviously it was not based in science. Um, in 2008, then the state became one of over 20 states that, uh, put informed consent restrictions into effect. So minors in Idaho have to get consent from a parent before they can have an abortion. Uh, women have to receive counseling that includes a lot of graphic information, uh, designed to discourage them from having abortions. And then they have to wait 24 hours before the procedure is provided. Um, public funding is not available for abortions unless uh, there's life endangerment, uh, rape or incest involved. Um, and then Idaho also has trap regulations that aim to restrict the, so those, they aim to restrict the provision of abortion services to hospitals and other specialized facilities. They require doctors to obtain really medically unnecessary licenses. Um, in Idaho, all second trimester abortion services have to be provided in a hospital. Uh, I was reading that NARAL actually argues that that is unconstitutional under a Supreme Court decision that was made in 1983. Um, Idaho law also requires that providers have satisfactory, quote unquote, transfer agreements with one or more acute care hospitals within reasonable proximity. And there's no exception for clinics in rural areas, which is most of the state, um, or if local hospitals will not agree to said transfer agreements. Uh, then as of now, um, abortion will be outright banned in Idaho when Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, abortions can only be performed right now before fetal viability, which most experts estimate is 24 weeks. Um, and then only if the patient's life is endangered. Um, another restriction now is uh, that we have a trigger law. Um, it's Senate Bill 1385. It passed the legislature in 2020. It will take effect 30 days after Roe versus Wade is overturned. Um, and this is about, I believe, one of 13 laws on the books in states across the country that are similar. It makes it a felony to perform abortions or to attempt to perform an abortion um, with a prison sentence of a minimum of two years for the medical professional who performs the abortion. Um, They could, after a second offense, have their uh, medical license permanently revoked. Um, There are fines for self-induced abortions. Um, I do believe that women under the, under that new law will be able to get charged, um, for uh, having an abortion and going through with it. 
uh, although I would have to double check that the uh, trigger law does include uh, exceptions in the case of rape and incest, but only if the person has previously reported the rape or incest to law enforcement and has provided a copy of that report to the phys- physician performing uh, the abortion. So we know that a lot of survivors of sexual assault and abuse do not report until much later. And so this is just another barrier to a basic medical procedure. Um, and then in April of this year, Idaho passed, um, sorry, of last year, Idaho passed the Fetal Heartbeat Protection Act. It was House Bill 366. It bans abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected. Um, that will also go into effect 30 days uh, after the state is legally able to ban abortion if Roe v. Wade is overturned. And then uh, this March, Idaho uh, was the first state to pass a copycat abortion ban modeled after Texas's Senate Bill 8. Um, so Texas's law, as we know, blocks abortion by avoiding judicial review um, by allowing anybody, anyone to sue abortion providers or others who help them access abortion after the fetal cardiac activity has been detected, which is um, roughly six weeks into pregnancy. And that's before most women can usually confirm that they're pregnant or have time to access care. Um, uh, let's see. SB 1309 is what Idaho's bill is called. And um let's see here just uh just to jump in here for a moment yeah. uh, uh can you tell us anything you know about uh, a proposed law that would forbid pregnant women from leaving the state of idaho for an abortion uh and also the the presence of uh, pro-choice oregon uh, being just an hour from boise uh, yeah what what kind of uh sort of surveillance state uh are are the the anti-choicers uh uh, looking to erect here to keep women from leaving the state? That's a good question. I know that there has been discussion about that. I do not think that anything has been proposed yet. Um, I do know that across the border, Oregon, um, Ontario, Oregon is preparing for an influx of Idaho patients. I read an article that uh, Planned Parenthood has rented uh, office space to begin providing abortions there. I think although Oregon does not have restrictions um on abortion access, there aren't many clinics uh, east of the Cascades. And so this in Ontario will be probably the only place where people in Idaho um, in the Boise area are able to go to access abortions. Um, Washington, I read the, the Guttmacher Institute um, uh, released a statistic. They said that 385%, they're expecting a 385% increase in patients from Idaho seeking abortions um, if the ban goes into effect. And uh, yeah, the other issue is that, um, you know, Idahoans could travel to surrounding states. So there's Washington, Montana, Oregon, Wyoming, and Utah. Um, but some of those states already have trigger bans in place. I think Wyoming and Utah do. And then, um, States like Montana, um, research organizations like the Guttmacher Institute expect them to potentially ban abortion after Roe is overturned just based upon political climate. And, and Aaron, you know, talk a little bit about the context there in, in Idaho, um, and the, the, th- your thoughts on Christo fascism and the various kinds of <laughs> Idaho and how it, um, relates to this. Yeah. So um, I do what I do in Idaho right now is that I actually work at a homeless shelter and um, all 
all of these issues I'm starting to realize are intertwined. It's all related to a rise in white supremacy nationally, but Idaho I've heard referred to before as the canary in the American political coal mine because it all seems to be kind of amplified here. Um, the idea, I think, is to force people into situations that they cannot get out of, you know, while you siphon up all of the wealth and power that you can and then keep people who aren't like you subjugated. Um, in Idaho, a lot of these abortion bans have been the result of um, what is now called, we have a nonprofit called the Idaho Family Policy Center that is related to these national nonprofits of a similar vein um, that are, their purpose is to educate church members about how they can get involved in public policy issues. They host things like biblical activism boot camps um, where they teach people about the biblical justifications um, for becoming involved in politics and um, advancing uh, Judeo-Christian values through legislation. Um, you know, <laughs> our, our politicians have all jumped onto that v- rhetoric in a variety of ways. Uh, Janice McGeehan, who is one of the candidates running for governor, who has been endorsed by Donald Trump, uh, actually said this month, um, quote, God calls us to pick up the sword and fight and Christ will reign in the state of Idaho. I mean, that is the thing that is underpinning all of these policies. Um, you know, whether it is uh, bans on providing gender affirming care to uh, young trans people or yeah, I could think of a number of different, <laughs> of different, laws or issues or policies that are that are happening in the same way it's like you want you want to force people into a corner because they're not white christian cis men and they don't fit into this system um and we are we are uh we are running short on time here and so we're going to pivot back uh to melanie and just ask you each a final question um melanie and and you know a last minute uh, just what are your plans uh, going forward to support women who need an abortion? And how do you think that's going to look in New York in general? Well, I think New Yorkers are preparing. I mean, I had a surgeon text me today and say, you know, OK, so are you credentialed in doing abortions? Because we had spoken before. And um, I mean, in, you know, there are a couple of different ways to do abortions. One is by disrupting the body hormonally, which is what plan B is, but what, what also a whole lot of birth control pills are. And the other is by disrupting the pregnancy, which is what mifepristone is. And people are doctors for the last year and a half have been mailing mifepristone to people. There's a large contingency of family practice doctors who do reproductive health care. So I guess what I would do now is do start doing funding projects that figure out ways to purchase and store mifepristone and plan B. And if it's, you might as well as store Depo Provera also, because that is also a, you know, at least a longer acting um, birth control. IUDs are also able to be used as emergency contraception. So I would figure out a way to get all these things funded. You know, the, the, the things themselves are not illegal at the moment. It's just using them. As a matter of fact, a heartbeat isn't a heartbeat until someone plunks an ultrasound on a belly. So interestingly enough, you are not pregnant until the doctor says you're pregnant. So you can't be pregnant 
if you don't, if you've never seen a doctor. So you can do things. Okay. Thank you so much, Melanie and, and Aaron. Now you last question, uh, 30 seconds. What, what are your plans going forward in Idaho and how can we follow you? We need to listen to women and people who are on the ground, who know about these things, who know about the fallout that these decisions are going to have on bodies. Um, and we need to organize and support each other. And how can we follow you, Aaron? You can follow me on uh, Twitter. My handle is Aaron underscore Sheridan. And that's E-R-I-N underscore S-H-E-R-I-D-A-N. Melanie McClellan, abortion doctor, Aaron Sheridan, former abortion doctor, Aaron Sheridan, indie writer out of Idaho right now to Boise. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will be back shortly after this music break. Thank you. That was Back to Black by Amy Winehouse. Welcome back to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM. I'm your host, John Tarleton. Before we continue with our second segment, I'm going to ask everyone who can do so to give to WBAI and help keep Peace and Justice Radio on the air here in New York, beaming its signal across the five boroughs and beyond. This is the station that brings you voices uh, like Melanie McLennan and Aaron Sheridan, who just joined us to talk about abortion rights and 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 the struggle uh, for what comes next if, if Roe versus Wade falls. And, uh, you know, we have great shows here every week and so many other great shows on this radio station. And uh, it's all made possible by you, our listener uh, supporters, 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. Or you can go to give number two, WBAI.org, make a one-time donation or become a monthly sustainer at WBAI buddy. Uh, Now we turn to Cuba, where hundreds of thousands of people uh, marched in Havana on May 1st to celebrate International Workers' Day. They were joined by an international delegation uh, that included the Indies Ambagagarian, and and that delegation had a chance to meet with all kinds of uh, Cubans from various walks of life, 
and uh, learn more about what's happening in Cuba and also learn more about the impact of the U.S. blockade of Cuba, which uh, began more than 60 years ago. Uh, Amba, well, uh, welcome back to the show. Uh, um, you know, it's great to have you back and, and to be able to share what you uh, you learned in Cuba. So can you uh, just start out um, a little bit, just uh, uh, tell us uh, who was on this delegation and where y'all went and uh, you know, wh- what did y'all do? Absolutely. Well, it's great to be here on WBI at any time as a guest or as a host. And, and, and yes, please, everybody gives WBI. We really need it. But now turning to Cuba, who also is in, in great need, which I'll get more into later. Um, I participated in a delegation with a group that I will definitely shout out, Witness for Peace. If you're interested in ongoing on a delegation, look them up, Witness for Peace Solidarity Collective. And it was uh, coordinated and organized by a fellow journalist, uh, awesome journalist, Julie, Julia Thomas here in New York has also worked with the independent and she was like, I want to organize a trip to Cuba. So she organized this delegation through witness for peace. And it was mostly other journalists and people that work in media, um, with the vantage point of going down to Cuba to really learn what is happening on the ground, because we know that there's so much misinformation and disinformation uh, fed in through the government and the mainstream media. So, you know, that was kind of the goal. Um, and uh, like I said, it was a group of mostly journalists, but also just some community activists. We had some an awesome uh, young woman who works in, in the South organizing uh, black workers. We have uh, um, some other really rad people that were on that uh, trip and we were really there to learn. And so we spoke with... Uh, a wide variety of Cubans from uh, people that had their own small businesses. So uh, one people who had a, these people who had a salsa class, uh, someone who had a small, a small sort of farm with medicinal herbs, but then um, we also, you know, some artisans and people who worked in the art, uh, art sort of industry. But then we also spoke with people who worked for the government and who were not a part of private enterprise. So um, people who worked with arts and culture that is funded by the Cuban government or people who work um, on in the agricultural agricultural system um, under Cuba's government, people that uh work within sort of a historical perspective, people that work uh, within the medical framework for sure, an amazing doctor. Um, And we also spoke to, um, well, I'm losing my thought here, but we, oh, we spoke to people both again within the government and with outside of the government who are talking about the um, changing family code in Cuba. So right now they're going through a relatively democratic process on a community level up to an official level of uh, changing their laws around family, which sort of includes, uh, includes uh, the family structure as far as like who can take care of a parent or a child, but also uh, what does marriage look like? So they're going through their own sort of um, cultural identity um, conversation, you know, as, as a lot of the world is. So that's what we, that's what we spoke to. But I also spoke to a lot of everyday Cubans, just like random people on the street in my free time. So. Right. And you, you speak fluent Spanish. So that was easy enough for you to do. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And, And what did you see, during your time in Cuba that stood out as being different from what you experienced living here in the United States? 
Ah, uh, too bad we don't. I, I know, too bad we don't have another hour. But you know, in this... <laughs> um, uh, but you know, I was telling you earlier, John, that basically it feels like just about everything has flipped on its head. Like everything, other than you know, some the sort of general trials and tribulations of being a person or being a person living under a power structure um, is about different. So, where in the U.S. we have. Um, a surplus of resources that are really, uh, really unequally um, sort of uh, disseminated throughout the populace, right? We all know about yep. the one percent now. One percent, one percent, all of that, right? You know, then we have poor people and migrants, so not able to find jobs or you know working uh like you know three three jobs in one day stuff like that you know for six bucks an hour something like that so in, in cuba there are is there are uh there's a very uh, lack of resources uh for many reasons mostly the blockade um and uh they have a a vast lack of resources or at least uh you know processed resources i guess because obviously it is a fertile island um, but they have really lack of access to almost everything. Um, and it is much more sort of fairly distributed throughout the people. Uh, but everybody is hurting for resources. But where they lack in resources, um, they are extremely supple in heart and in mind and in spirit. Like there's a sense of solidarity among Cuban to Cuban that I just never felt anywhere else and it was like really moving and also bittersweet because i'm coming back here and just really not seeing that same level of solidarity and so there's this level of solidarity that's the heart and then there's this level of like constant discernment i mean cuban people are highly educated they're most you know people that i spoke to that were my age or older had gone to college because college is free and uh and the literacy rate is 97 percent. now i don't know exactly what it was before the revolution in a lot lower it was like 30 to 50%. I think it was under 50%. It was very low, embarrassingly low. And so it's up to 97%. And that shows. I think another thing that shows is, um, <laughs> despite the, the shortcomings of, uh, you know, uh, of what, I guess, what socialism can do within a capitalist framework that we live in, and then the obvious shortcomings of capitalism, like I really learned that a people to a government or to a social system is kind of like a child to a parent or a group of students to a, a teacher or a school. Like we do seem to reflect to a certain extent on a general level, the values of our rulers or, or the system that rules us, right? Like I could just see yeah, the system wouldn't be able to still stay in place if it, if, if it didn't work to, out that way. Absolutely. It seems obvious what I'm saying, but it, it felt enlightening in the moment. I was like, sure. Wow, even though like Cuban socialism, you know, has its problems and again, socialism can't be really be realized in this global capitalist framework, not to mention the blockade, like these people are looking out for each other and these people aren't talking about themselves so much. Coming back, being on the subway, hearing every person just how they're going to do better, what they're going to do next. They're in a rush. They're late. You know, I love New York and I love the hustle, but that was a lot of culture shock. A lot of culture shock. And I'll just say too, like uh, uh, <laughs> the health system while people have to wait in lines in Cuba and there's a lot of like lacking medical resources, which again is a factor of the blockade, uh, people have access to preventative health care. They have a health system where there's like this uh, a mini clinic and then like a larger sort of like 
like imagine like an urgent care size thing mm-hmm. and then a hospital within each sort of like community area. And at your mini clinic, your doctor, the doctors live on top of the clinic. So they are like forced to sort of stay within that locale. And, uh, and they check on, they go to your door if you don't show up for your, for your, for your appointment. And I'm comparing this to like, I'm so grateful to have health health first, which is, you know, essentially like Medicaid, the state healthcare system. But I have to be, I have to shove all my problems into a 15 minute, a 15 minute appointment on telehealth, which is never enough, which means that I have to make another appointment to talk to my doctor. And I'm suffering from terrible COVID. I mean, it's ridiculous. Not to mention Cuba has figured out a vaccine for a uh, for lung cancer, but we can't access that either because of the blockade, which maybe you'll ask me about next. Yeah. So uh, talk a little bit more about the impact of this more than 60 year old blockade that has been, that was intensified in the 1990s by the Helms Burton law and then further tightened uh, under Trump. I mean, uh, Biden did lift a few of the restrictions yesterday. Yeah. Uh, um, but uh, what were people, I mean, wh- what was your sense of the blockade's impact? And um, and and what were Cubans telling you about this, and 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 why why you feel it's so important for the blockade to be lifted? Right. So the blockade affects, um, like essentially all trade. Um, one um, how do I put this? So the blockade not only sanctions. Um, trade between the U.S. and Cuba. And the only sanction that isn't quote unquote, uh, the only trade that isn't quote unquote sanctioned is that of food. But Cuba has to buy in cash that day, which isn't really difficult for a small country that's in a lot of debt. So it essentially is a blockade on food. They do get chicken from, they do get chicken from um, the U.S., but that's a long story. So it sanctions not only trade between the U.S. and Cuba, which would be difficult in itself because essentially in this, again, global market, mm-hmm. capitalistic market, everyone has to be buying and selling to the U.S. You know, we're, we're, we're the empire right now. So that would be difficult in itself, but that's not where it stops. It, stop, it doesn't stop. So essentially any country that wants to do trade with Cuba, then can't do trade with the U.S. or is sanctioned by the U.S. And that includes even a product, like if uh, for a country, if one part of the product has, comes. yeah. So let's like use a country like China, who obviously is like we're going to trade with Cuba anyway. We'll deal with the sanctions. They cannot sell Cuba anything that has any U.S. product in it. of U.S. product in it. So this complicates every aspect of life from the types of foods that you need to ship in, um, which is, you know, most there was uh, Castro, Fidel Castro had a rule uh, that every child up until the age of nine gets milk every day for free. And in February, they had their first day without milk um, because obviously COVID has impacted the Cuban economy direly um, in addition to the, the, the Trump basically reinstating any part of the blockade that by that Obama had lowered and then some as 243 restrictions actually to be exact. Um, so they've been hurting. And so they've been struggling to get milk and they're the first day without milk in February. And it was, uh, let me give you a situation of how they have to get milk so they can get milk from New Zealand and Holland and these other third party countries who are sort of willing to like, you know, help them with this child health program, uh, but they can't go and pick it up from them or else that country can't do trade with the U.S. So they have to go take one of their own boats 
to, I don't know, Suriname or Trinidad. They have to go take a boat to an island and pick up the milk. And there was a delay on that. And so there was a day without milk for the kids. And, you know, uh, why doesn't Cuba till more of its own land? Well, what uh, machinery, farm machinery is, is, is blocked, you know, um, you know, sometimes they have a great robust healthcare system for what it is, but a kid is dying in the hospital because they don't have access to a certain medicine that they know exists somewhere else. The list goes on art supplies, really everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Cubans, uh, are, it's really complicated, understandably complicated. Uh, Cubans are definitely anti-blockade, but right now it seems to be an anti-U.S., but right now it seems to be, you know, people are frustrated. They've got a long time with really low resources uh, ever since the Soviet, you know, uh, since the USSR fell and the wall fell in the beginning of the 90s. So uh, people are, are are struggling and they're tired. And, and I think some of them think they're stuck on this island for the most part because the blockade also restricts travel. So they're stuck on this island and, uh, and, you know, they know that sort of like the bane of their existence is this set of laws in the U.S. But I think when you're stuck on an island, maybe it's hard to fully grasp that like that it's such this intangible thing is the bane of your existence. So a lot of them are really frustrated and are kind of overhearing about the blockade. I think they feel like the, maybe it's hit over the head too much. And, uh, and, and they kind of think, well, you know, we need to solve internal problems and we could, you know, uh, uh, figure it out. But I think really, um, honestly, they need to zoom out to a certain extent too, and just realize how unfortunately the reality is that the U S war machine and U S government can affect the internal economy of countries all over the world and has, but I totally understand being really tired of hearing of the same thing as being your problem for a really long time. And there are a lot of nuances a lot of nuances, which uh, I won't have time to get into, but yeah. I will be writing for the indie. So just check, check us, read us no matter what, you know, and, you go. and I think I'll just say in our closing minute, like, you know, there's a, a lot of complication, like I just said around what Cubans think internally, but a, a big issue is the mainstream media and the fact that, you know, in the past uh, decade or so Cubans now have access to, uh, the internet and you know Cuban We're have to wrap up in like 20 seconds Cuban youth are watching euphoria and you know they're 15 that's what they want it's understandable but uh they don't see the inequalities of global capitalism uh the mainstream media does not put forth those d- dire inequalities i mean what's going on in new york with homelessness and eviction right now and uh in the same way the u.s media is always lying about what happens in Cuba. So there's a big cry for honest reporting. So I just suggest that people, if they want to learn more about Cuba, maybe check out Witness for Peace, you know, be discerning about the news you're reading. And please, if you have the wherewithal to do so and you want some historical context, read Open Veins of Latin America by Eduardo Galeano. That's Open Veins of Latin America. And uh, thank you, PBI, for having us every week and for having me today. I'm on bigger gearing with the independent. Yeah, thank yes. We'll have to leave it there. Hopefully we can come back to this another day. Amiga Garyan recently returned from Cuba. And that does it for today's show. We'll be back same time uh, next Tuesday at 5 to 6 p.m. here on WBAI. Thanks to our board operator, Reggie Johnson. And uh, Amba, what's our uh, musical uh, uh, outro here? We're going to hear uh, Roomba, Strictly Rhythm, a Cuban, a Cuban remix of some Roomba um, by Armand Van Helden. Let's go to it. <laughs>